0: If you have a copy of the Scriptures close by, you can open right to the middle to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 1. We're going to look at both of those Psalms together this morning. There is an outline in the bulletin you can track along with some of the main ideas that we're going to talk about. This is the end of our summer sermon series, the last Sunday that we're devoting to the series we've titled Knowing Jesus, and we just spent the summer last couple of months Thinking about who Jesus is, the person of Christ. And each week, as we've talked about who Jesus is, we found ourselves moving over to talk about what he did for us, not only the person of Christ, but also the work of Christ. So, just to remind you of the ground that we've covered over the summer months, we'll put up on the screen uh, what we have spent the summer discussing. We started off talking about Jesus as the ruler of the kings on this earth, and we're going to talk about that again this morning we talked about Jesus as the savior the one who came to seek and to save the lost we've sung about that truth already together this morning ron heinsley preached he talked about Jesus being our friend what does it mean that Jesus is the friend of sinners and then we talked about Jesus being faithful faithful to his promises faithful to his people faithful to his character Uh, Jason Westfall preached and he talked to us about Jesus being the only mediator between the holy God and sinful people like you and I. He's our go-between, he's our advocate, and he's the only one that can mediate between sinners and a holy God. We talked about Jesus returning, he will be returning, he will be coming back for his people. We talked about Jesus being gentle, what does it mean that he's gentle and lowly in heart, and then we talked about Jesus the servant. He did not come to be served, but He came to serve. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. We looked at Philippians 2 and how Jesus humbled Himself by becoming a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and He humbled Himself even to the point of death on a cross. So we have one more sermon this morning to add to this series. All of the previous sermons we pulled from New Testament passages, And I thought it would be a good idea this morning to pull at least one from the Old Testament. That means when we look at Psalm 2, we're looking at a passage that was written, not looking backwards on Jesus' life, but looking forward to the coming of Jesus. So we're going to talk about Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 together this morning. And the first thing that I want you to know is that those two psalms go together. Psalm 1. And Psalm 2, in your Bibles, they are neatly and nicely divided. There's a chapter division, a space, all the rest. And I'm just saying to you that in your mind, when you think about the beginning chapters of the book of Psalms, you ought to sort of mash Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together. Thematically, they are connected. Both of them talk about blessing. Psalm 1, which we'll read in just a minute, starts off saying, this person... Is blessed, And then by the time we work all the way through Psalm 2 this morning, we'll find out how we can receive that very same blessing that's talked about at the beginning of Psalm 1. Both of these, these Psalms talk about wickedness and rebellion, both of them talk about God's wrath and His judgment, and both of them talk about hope for the righteous person. And you see in both of these Psalms attention that you and I as sinful people are not righteous and we have no hope, but in Jesus We can find hope, we can find blessing, and we can find life. So we're going to work through both of these passages this morning. I'd just like us to read Psalm 1 as we begin, and then have a few more things to say about Psalm 2. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that He does He prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's Psalm 1. I want you to notice that the thing in Psalm 1 that sets apart the righteous person from the wicked, the one thing that makes the difference is found in verse 2, where verse 2 says, the righteous person delights in the law of the Lord, and on God's law he meditates day and night. So, starting next week, all the way through the end of this year, we're going to look at Psalm 119. It has 176 verses. Those 176 verses are broken down into 22 stanzas of 8 verses each. And we're going to take a stanza each week. And what we're going to find is that almost all of those 176 verses in Psalm 119 make some mention, some reference to the law of God, the word of God, the testimonies of God, the precepts of God, and they begin with this very same theme of blessing. And we're just going to work our way through Psalm 119 the rest of this year talking about the centrality of God's word in the lives of God's people. This morning, Psalm 2 and Psalm 1. So when you get to Psalm 2, which we'll read in a minute, verse 2 references a person who is called the Anointed. And in most English translations, that A is a capital A, a big A, the Lord's Anointed. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. You can sort of put as much grunt into the end of that as you want to pretend like you're Hebrew. But it's Mashiach, and the Greek word is Christos. Both of them literally mean the Anointed One, but you can see where we get the word Messiah or Christ. The Messiah or the Christ, spoken about in our passage this morning. Literally, in the Old Testament, there were three people who were anointed for their service. And this is going to help you understand the word Christ or Messiah. In the Old Testament, the prophet was anointed, the priest was anointed, and the king was anointed there was going to be a new prophet, they anointed them with oil. If there was going to be a new priest, they anointed him with oil. If there was going to be a new king, he was anointed with oil. And So I gave you just a few references if you want to find this in the Old Testament. There's a reference in 1 Kings to Elijah being sent to anoint Elisha to be the new prophet. So the prophets were anointed. There's a reference here to Moses receiving instructions from the Lord to anoint his brother Aaron. Serve as the high priest. So the prophets were anointed, the priests were anointed, and then lastly, 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel was sent to anoint David, the shepherd boy, to be the next king in Israel. And you can find other examples of prophets, priests, and kings being anointed, but this is what we're saying when we talk about Jesus being the Christ. Literally, we're saying Jesus is the Christ, he's the true prophet sent from God, he's the great high priest who offered a sacrifice for the sins of his people, and he is the king who will rule over all kings. Jesus fulfills all of these offices as the big A anointed one, or as the Messiah, or as the Christ. And I gave you some verses in the New Testament that talk about Jesus being this prophet sent from God, being the great high priest who offered a sacrifice for the sins of his people, being the king who will rule over all kings, the Lord who will rule over all lords. Jesus fulfills all of these offices. Now, one last thing I want you to hear me say. I also gave you some verses in your notes, and you can see them on the screen in Luke 24. Homework, Luke 24. Go home and read it. Jesus has died on the cross for sinners. He's been raised from the dead, and He's appearing to His disciples. And in Luke 24... He's talking to his disciples who are completely confused about everything that's going on. And in both of these references I gave you, Jesus says to them, He's the Christ, and everything written about him in the Old Testament, the law and the Psalms and the prophets, all of it had to be fulfilled. And so Jesus is helping us understand what it means that he's the Christ. Not only is he the prophet, priest, king, But he's the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament promises, all of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the Old Testament institutions. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing us forward to Jesus. And Jesus says that the Christ had to fulfill all of those things. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're not talking about Jesus Christ like Landon Coleman. It's not part of his proper name, it's not his surname, it's not his last name. It's a title that helps us understand he's the anointed prophet, he's the anointed priest, he's the anointed king, he's the one who fulfills all of the prophecies and promises that we find in the Old Testament. So, the big idea of our passage is very simple. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ. If you prefer, he's the Messiah. Mostly this morning, I will use Christ rather than Messiah. That's what the New Testament uses. There's only two places in the New Testament where the word Messiah is used, both in the Gospel of John. And John translates both of them, in case you don't know Hebrew, and he says Jesus is the Messiah. If you didn't know, that means the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. So, take your copy of the Scriptures. We'll read Psalm 2. Why... The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. who take refuge in Him. Father, this morning we're thankful that You have sent Your Son. In the fullness of time, You sent Jesus, the Christ, to live for us and to die for us. And not only did Jesus come to live and to die, but He came to rule and to reign. We pray that we would see these truths about Jesus promised and prophesied and predicted in Psalm 2, and that we would respond as people who are eager to take refuge in Jesus the Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. The question we want to ask this morning is simple. What does Psalm 2 tell us about Jesus the Christ? I mentioned earlier, we could have pulled a New Testament passage. We could have pulled from Matthew chapter 1. It talks about Jesus being the Christ, and we could have worked through that passage. Uh, In talking about Jesus the Christ, we could have pulled a number of different verses from all over the place and tried to connect the dots on all of those ideas. Both of those are valid ways to think about Jesus as the Christ. What we're going to do is listen to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 doesn't say everything that we might say about Jesus being the Christ, but it does say important things that we need to hear about Jesus being the Christ. And so we're going to walk through this passage, and answer the question, what does this psalm teach us about Jesus the Christ? There's basically five truths, and you can see on your notes that they are arranged chiastically. It's a chiasm. This poem, this song is a chiasm. And all that means is that the first part corresponds with the last part. So in this instance, part one lines up with and talks about the same thing as part two five. And then as you move in, part two is on the same level as part four. Those two parts line up. And then at the middle, you have part three set aside furthest to the right. That really gets to the heart of the passage. And we're just going to work through these five parts in order, and you understand how the poem is constructed. So what does Psalm 2 teach us or tell us about the Christ? The first thing it acknowledges is that there is a great rebellion against the Christ. There's a rebellion against the Christ. Listen again to verse 1, 2, and 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? Their plotting is in vain, but they're plotting. Why do they do this? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together. Who are they raging against? Who are they plotting against? Number one, against the Lord. And it's all caps, that's Yahweh in the original Hebrew. They're raging and plotting and pushing back against Yahweh and against His Christ. They want nothing to do with the Lord or the Christ. And what they're saying, notice the quotation marks in verse 3. You have to pay attention to quotation marks in Psalm 2. The quotation marks is what the nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers are saying. They're saying, "Let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us." They have some control over us and we don't want them, the Lord and his anointed, to have control over us. So you read those verses and you walk away saying to yourself, who are these raging, plotting, angry, defiant, rebellious nations? Who are they? Maybe you think to yourself, could it be the Chinese Communist Party? government that is openly and antagonistically atheistic, wants to stamp out all faiths, including the Christian faith. Maybe you say to yourself, China's not bad enough for this description. Maybe it's North Korea, Kim Jong-il, and you can't have Bibles, and you can't go to church, and even more restrictive, even more closed than China. Maybe you say to yourself, no, those aren't bad enough. Maybe it's some sort of Islamic terrorist organization, some rogue group of people splitting off, and their stated purpose, their stated mission is to kill Christians and to be done with Christianity, and to be done with Jesus. Who are these nations and these peoples and these kings and these rulers? Are you ready for the answer? It's me. And it's you. And it's every person on this planet apart from God's saving and changing grace. It's all of us in rebellion against the Creator. The Bible's clear about this. You read about Genesis 3, a great rebellion that occurred in the beginning, and then you get just a few chapters down the road, and you're thinking to yourself, how bad is it? I mean, Adam and Eve messed up, but how bad have things gotten? And the Bible says this in Genesis 6-5, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It's not a small wickedness. It's not a slight wickedness. It's not marginal. It's not negligible. It's a great wickedness. How great is it? Well, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. Worldwide rebellion against the Creator. You say, is it really that bad? Well, you come to the book of Psalms. And for all these Psalms, 150 of them, did you know there are two of them that are almost word-for-word identical? Why would we need word-for-word, almost duplicate copies of the same Psalm? It's because we need to be reminded of this truth truth. Psalm 14 and 53, that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's anyone who understand or any who seek God. Are there any who want to be on the side of the Lord and His anointed? Any? Is there anyone? The psalmist says they've all turned aside, they've together become corrupt, and there's none who does good, not even one. It's all of us. Paul picks up on Genesis 6 and Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in the book of Romans. And in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he lays out the most comprehensive description of our rebellion against God that you'll find in the Bible. He says this in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That sin of ungodliness is essentially the sin of saying to God, I don't want you in my life. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to acknowledge you as the creator. I don't want to submit to you as the ruler. I don't want you to try to tell me what to do. It's exactly what's happening in Psalm 2, verse 1, 2, and 3, where the nations and the peoples and the rulers and the kings say, We have had enough of the Lord, and we have had enough of His anointed, and we do not want them ruling us. They want to rule themselves. Now, if you don't think that that's still true today in the United States or in North Korea or in China or in Kenya or anywhere you go on planet Earth, you just go to people who are not Christian people and you look them in the eye and you say to them, Jesus Christ is Lord and he demands that you repent and put your faith in him. Stop what you're doing and move in a new direction. And when you do that, one of two things will happen. It's possible that the Spirit of God will open that person's heart to the truth of the gospel and they will repent and they will follow Jesus. But if that doesn't happen, do you know what will happen? Raging. Pushing back. Rejection of the idea that there is a Creator and that we ought to be ruled by Him. Left to ourselves, this rebellion describes you and this rebellion describes me. So there's a rebellion against the Christ. Secondly, there's the sovereignty of the Christ. The sovereignty of the Christ. Now we're going to get to verse 4, 5, and 6. Let's just have a quick thought experiment. I don't ask you about your feelings much, but I want to ask you about your feelings in this thought experiment. I want you to try to think, as best you can, how you would feel If you knew that every person on this planet was against you. If every person on this planet despised you. And wanted nothing to do with you. And wanted to be done with you. And wanted to destroy you. All the people, high and low, kings, rulers, presidents, dictators, generals, politicians, governors, mayors, teachers, pastors, parents children, everyone, if everyone was against you. Now in this thought experiment, you probably, some of you, are thinking to yourself, I kind of feel like that some days. Some of you are saying to yourself, bring it on. Me against the world. I don't need anybody. I could handle it. I could take it. Really? Could you? How do you feel when you find out that another person has talked about you just behind your back? Not even to your face. You just know that one person is against you and they've talked about you to one other person behind your back. Does that bother you? Most of you would say, yes, that bothers me. What about when you get on social media and you read what people are posting and you read a post from someone and you say, <laughs> I know what they're saying. They didn't really say it, but I know what they're saying and I know who they're saying about they're talking about me. Does that bother you? Most of you don't just keep scrolling mindlessly. Most of you screenshot it and you send it to a friend and you say, can you believe what they just said? Can you? The nerve of that person. Look at this. It bothers you. What about when you're driving down 42nd Street to lunch and somebody swerves right out in front of you and you say, the whole traffic pattern of Odessa is against me. This person is trying to ruin my day. It bothers you and you get upset. And what we're reading about here isn't just a a sub-tweet. It's not just somebody didn't see you and they jumped in front of you on 42nd Street. It's not just one person gossiping behind your back. It's the whole of mankind in defiant opposition and rebellion to the Lord and to his anointed. And here's the response. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. Let me be clear. This is not a ha-ha, that's funny kind of laugh. This is not a ha-ha, that's cute kind of laugh. This is the kind of laugh that's laughing when you're saying to yourself, you have got to be kidding me. You, the creature, are going to push back against the Creator. You, who are very, very small, you're going to push back against the Anointed One, the Christ. And God laughs at this. It's preposterous. Verse 4 says, He holds them in derision. I had to look the word up this week, derision. It means ridicule or mockery. Ridicule or mockery. I tried to think about a story in the Bible where someone ridiculed someone else or mocked someone else. And the first story that popped into my mind was Elijah with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal and Elijah have this big showdown. And the prophets of Baal go first and they dance and they sing and they cut and they scream and they go crazy. And Elijah mocks them. He ridicules them. He holds them in derision because what they're doing has no chance of working. Why? Have you read the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? It's because no one was listening. Baal was not paying attention. The Lord sees this rebellion. He laughs. It's ridiculous. He holds them in derision. You've got to be kidding me. Verse 5, how does he feel about it? Well, he speaks to them in his wrath and he terrifies them in his fury. He's angry at this rebellion. He's furious with this rebellion. He's wrathful towards this rebellion. And notice what he says, the one who sits in heaven, what the Lord says in verse 6. This is the Lord Yahweh speaking. He says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's established a king. You know, another word for king is sovereign someone who's in complete control, someone who is in no way, shape, or, or form threatened by human rebellion. So there is a rebellion, and you and I are part of it by nature. And God looks at it and his place in the cosmos on the throne with his anointed at his side is not at all in jeopardy or threatened. In fact, he laughs at the possibility that this rebellion would succeed. And he simply asserts his sovereignty and he says, you know what? I've established a king, an anointed king, a king to rule all kings and a lord to rule over all lords. This is the sovereignty of the Christ. Thirdly, we see the sonship of the Christ. Verse 7, this gets to the heart of the passage. It's a a pulling back of the curtain to show you who this king is, who this anointed one is. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. You notice the quotation marks have ended. So now what you have is the anointed one speaking. And he says, I'm going to tell you of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the Christ speaking about what the Father has said to him and what the Father says is, you are my son. You understand this is a Trinitarian conversation. It's one of the most amazing things in the Bible when you get a glimpse into a conversation between the Godhead. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son and he says to the Son that he has begotten him he's not birthed him or he's not been born i texted somebody in my family just before church i'm going to be gone to preteen camp and i said hey i'm going to miss your birthday happy birthday in advance talked to somebody just before church this morning it's their birthday today i said hey happy birthday to you you understand that the anointed the eternal son of god has no birthday he's begotten not born he's the creator We talked about this last week in Philippians 2. It's the deep end of the doctrinal pool with the mystery of the incarnation and the preexistence of the Son of God. There has never been a time when He was not. He has always existed. Co-equal with the Father. Co-equal with the Spirit. And yet in the fullness of time, it was God the Son who was sent by God the Father to take the form of a servant and to be born in the likeness of men. And we celebrate the birth of Jesus Not the birth of the eternal Son of God who is eternally begotten of the Father, but the birth of Jesus in space, time, and history. Why was He born? To live for us and to die for us and to rule over us. There's plenty of people today who will sign up for the living part and the dying part who then say, Circle back to chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3. I don't really want Him to rule over me. And I would just say to you that Psalm 2 does not present you with that option. He came to live for His people. He came to die for His people. He came to rule over His people. It's the sonship of the Christ. Number four. This may sound familiar. The psalmist tells tells us about the sovereignty of the Christ. We've already said that, but that's how the chiasm works. Section 2 corresponds with Section 4, and they basically talk about the same thing the sovereignty of the Christ. Verse 8 Ask of me. Now, notice we're picking up in the middle of a quotation here. This is the Father speaking to the Son You're my Son. Today I've begotten you. The quotation continues, verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So much for all the raging and the plotting and the scheming. The Father simply says to the Son, who is the King, who is the Anointed One, If you ask me, the nations will be yours. Ask of me and I'll give you these nations. Which nations? What are the nations doing? Well, they're raging and they're plotting and they're taking counsel together and then they're in rebellion, in defiance to the anointed one. And the Father says, if you ask me, I will give them to you. Can you think of a story in the Bible where someone said to Jesus that he would give him the nations? It's interesting, isn't it? It's in the Gospels, it's in Matthew chapter 3, and it's not the father speaking to the son, it's actually Satan speaking to Jesus in the temptation, and he says this, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms, all the nations, all the peoples, all the kings, all the rulers, all of those in defiant rebellion against the anointed one. He showed him all of them and all their glory, and Satan, the devil, said to Jesus, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. If you do this thing, I will give them to you. Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy 6, which says, You will worship the Lord your God and Him only will you serve. You understand that He could have, I'm not trying to correct Jesus, but He could have quoted Psalm 2 and said, You know what? Funny thing, they've already been promised to me. The Father promised them to me. You understand what Satan was doing in this moment is he's presenting Jesus with a shortcut that involves no suffering. He's saying to Jesus, I have a way for you to get the nations without suffering and dying on a cross. Your Father has sent you here to seek and to save the lost, to give your life as a ransom For many to redeem a people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. Satan is saying to Jesus, I have a way for you to do that without dying. Without suffering. And Jesus rejected that path. Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He resolved to suffer and die to serve his people. John 13, having loved them, he loved them to the end. And he laid down his life purchase them. He didn't take this satanic temptation. And what is the result of what Jesus did? He didn't take the shortcut. He chose the cross. And here's the result, Revelation chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. It's not worthy to take the seal and to receive all of these accolades in heaven because he bowed a knee in the, the wilderness to the devil. But he's worthy because he was slain. Because he died. And by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Which tribe and language and people and nation? Well, the very ones you just read about in Psalm 2. The ones who are raging in defiance. Who want nothing to do with the Lord. You see the grace of Jesus See, the grace of the Father in sending Jesus, the grace of Jesus in dying. He's not dying for his friends. He's dying for his enemies, his sworn enemies, for rebels, for treasonous, wicked people. From every tribe, language, people, and nation. And he's made them a kingdom and priest to God, and they will reign on the earth. Not only did he die for them, but he's now sharing in his reign with them. It's the sovereignty of the Christ. Lastly, the psalmist talks about submission to Christ. Submission to Christ. This last section becomes personal for us. It's an appeal to you. Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We won't discuss all of the imagery here, but essentially it's taken from an ancient court. Uh, The presence of a monarch or a, a small s sovereign from a king. And the peasants and the small people and the little people and the servants would come in and they would bow and there would be a ring that they kissed or a scepter that they kissed and they would show respect and honor. And essentially the psalmist is saying, you need to do that with Jesus. You need to come joyfully, gladly, but with fear and with trembling and you need to submit to Him because His wrath is very very real and it will be kindled in an instant. Now I don't want you to miss verse 12. Verse 12 is is the gospel in fullest form in Psalm 1 and 2. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way his wrath is quickly kindled. Look at the very last sentence. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here's how we end as we tie these two psalms together. The wicked are actually invited to find blessing. By taking refuge in the Christ. Today, you as a sinner, you are invited to find blessing from God by taking refuge in the Christ. So, let's just back up to Psalm 1 quickly. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. Blessed is the man, or the woman... Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, God's law, he, the righteous man, she, the righteous woman, meditates day and night. Here's my question. Do those two verses describe you? Do they describe you perfectly? Do they describe you every day? All day? Those two verses describe you on good days and bad days? Those two verses describe you when someone gossips about you? Or maybe when you are invited to gossip about someone else? Do those two verses describe you when someone anonymously posts about you on social media? Or when you're tempted to do that? Very same thing. Do those verses describe you when you're driving down 42nd Street? And rush hour traffic. Is that you perfectly all the time? Because I know it's not me. And I have a feeling it's not you. When you read about this one. Who never walks in the counsel of the wicked. Who never stands in the way of sinners. Who never sits in the seat of scoffers. There's only one person I can think of in the whole Bible. and the whole world. That lives up to that billing. And it's Jesus the Christ. He's the one who delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night. He's not talking about me. He's not talking about you. He's talking about Jesus. And if you say, well, where do I show up in Psalm 1? Well, you and I show up in verse 4. We're the wicked. We're not like the righteous. We're different. We're not so. We're like chaff that the wind drives away. We're not like that tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, prospers in everything that it does. That's not us. We're like chaff blown By the West Texas wind. Verse 5 says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. You understand if you just left off with Psalm 1. It's really not good news for you. Or me. Because we find ourselves as the wicked. As sinners. And we're promised in Psalm 1 that we are not going to stand on the day of judgment. You cannot stand on that day. By yourself. You will not be part of the congregation of the righteous if you have fallen short of God's glory. It won't happen. Did you hear how Psalm 2 ended? Psalm 2 was honest about our rebellion, the raging, the plotting, the wanting to throw off God's reign and rule over our lives. But Psalm 2 ends up with this Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. It's the bookend for Psalm 1. You understand there's two ways for you to find blessing from God. The first is to never sin and to always delight in God's law. That's the first way. Never sin and always delight in His law. And if you're honest with yourself today, you you say, well, scratch that off the list for me because I've messed that up. So here's the second way to find blessing from God. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Refuge in who? In the Son. In the King. In the Anointed One. In the One who was sent by the Father to speak what is true, the Great Prophet. In the One who came to lay down His life as a sacrifice sinners, the great high priest, and the one who came born humbly as a servant but born to be the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the one who came to fulfill all of the Old Testament hopes and promises and prophecies, the Christ, blessed are all who take refuge in him.